and welcome to the Handbag Designer 101 podcast with your host, Emily Blumenthal, handbag designer expert and handbag fairy godmother, where we cover everything about handbags from making, marketing, designing, and talking to handbag designers and industry experts about what it takes to make a successful handbag. Welcome, Ada Lourdes of Ada Lou Paris to the Handbag Designer 101 podcast. So happy to have you here. Oh, so happy to connect with you again. I love our chats. Our chats are so good. I know. We always say that our chats should be a podcast, and now we have the opportunity at least to have one of them to be a podcast because we have so much to say. (laughs) That's fine. This is like such a good idea. I'm so happy you're doing this. Yeah, well, I'm happy we're doing this together because this was long overdue. But just to dive right in, let's get into the nitty gritty. So you are Puerto Rican. <laughs> yes, I'm from the island of Puerto Rico. Yes, okay. <laughs> Bienvenidos. So why don't you tell a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, how you made it to the States, to Paris, and then we can get into you know, the lovely story of the trials and tribulations and the celebrations of having your amazing handbag line. So I grew up in the island of Puerto Rico with my single and my aunt. And I would say that I'm a normal child of the 80s. I love 80s music. I am super sentimental about that era of my life. You know, you grew grew up in the beach, Puerto Rico. You grew up with that, you know, listening to the radio back then and then the TV, both free TV. And I always was creative because I was a dancer since three. So I've always danced mostly jazz and kind of show performances. And then I was always like, it's a talent show here, the talent, the national talent show. When I was in college, I would dance at the, like, what is equivalent to like the Lakers game, like the National wow. League of Basketball. And that is the best job I've ever had in my life. I didn't know that. I did yeah. not know that. What was the team? So it was all of the teams. So we would go because it was sponsored by one of the supermarkets. I think it was Econo supermarket or something like that. And they would like pay us $125 every week to get in a van every Tuesday, I think, to go to some random city in Puerto Rico, town in Puerto Rico, to dance the half time. Oh, how old were you? I was 18, 19. Yeah. What did your mom say? I don't oh my think God. she realized, like, the extent <laughs> of where I was going in a van, like, this mountain town, and whatever. I mean, we had dance practice. I was also a cheerleader. I went to the University of Puerto Rico. So basically, my mom, as long as I was studying something and getting the grades and such, she would, like, let me do my little creative, creative like, right, outfit. Right. But she was very strict, like, you gotta go and study finance. Like, I, you know, I wanted to go to... <laughs> Go to, I wanted to go to Broadway and dance. And she was like, that's not happening. You're going to like study finance. So as long as I study finance, I will be able to do the address. And I did modeling. I did commercials. I did everything that I could because now I had a car. I could move around the city and I could just go wherever there was a casting or a, or a dance open call or, or whatever. Yeah. As long as, as I were doing finance. As long as I was doing finance. So that was fine. So I feel that a lot of my creativity comes from that other side of me, that other kind of life that I had. Right. Like being 80 hours on a set 
and learning how they were doing things and constructing a story about one of the products they were selling and things like that. So it was a really fun time, liberating and just artistic, being able to do stuff, even if it was just my side stuff, because I was going to university to do finance. Right. And of course, I enter into a bank and I did investment and treasury for like almost 15 years. Were you and still in Puerto Rico or you came to the States for this? So I was in Puerto Rico the first 10 and the last four, I was in New York City. And the interesting thing is that the other day I was in Puerto Rico and a friend asked me, a, a new acquaintance that's trying to get to know me. It's also with empowering women and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. men. And she's like, Are you, were you a woman that was a, a, a woman banker or were you just a woman that worked marketing? at a bank. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was the best question I've heard. And wow. I was like, I, I started laughing and I said, I actually was a woman banker and we were doing banking and funding and like IPO stuff and like, you know, the, the, perception, for the, bank. the perception difference of someone in finance versus someone in marketing is like night and day. I mean, I have an MBA and you could tell just from the first class who was finance undergrad and who wasn't. And I was one of those people. Like I went through my entire undergrad without having to take a math class because I was a Russian Spanish marketing major of some description until my Yeah. So my senior year, I took an arbitrage class thinking like, oh, yeah, I can just pick it up. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, hey, I can't be all that hard. <laughs> oh, wow. And it ends, it ends all these years later. She's saying we need more women like you again yeah. like in bank. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if that's going to be me. Maybe yes. Maybe no. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. fast forward, then I end up in New York City. And, I can't uh, believe we, we never met. So funny when you think about that time that we never overlapped. Yeah, I know. That was 2011 to 2014, basically. So, yeah. Yeah, I was in the city. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did investor relations for the bank. It was a NASDAQ company. So I handled this connection between like very old executive management and the new breed of hedge funders and 20-something finance dudes in New York. Yeah. And our investor base was mostly in like the uh, Northeast. So that's when I came along and I could understand the finance, but also talk to people. And that was the job that I loved the most being at the bank. But then in New York City, you're in New York City. So there's like films and movie sets and fashion and all those things. And then I start to get a little kind of like, uh, do something. Yeah. I should start, you know, maybe I don't need to be in banking, you know, all my life. If I made it in banking, I'm sure going to be able to do it in something else, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The, the funny it. thing is, in L.A., everybody is an actor, comma. It's like acting oh. and. But in New York, it's like everybody has hustle and day job, right? Or, or it's That's day job and the hustle. So it's like you got to have something. So when you talk to someone and you ask them, oh, what do you do? Which is such a cliche thing still to ask. It's like, well, this is my day job, but this is what else I'm actually doing. And if you don't have that comma and it starts messing yeah. with your head like, "Ooh, I know I've got something creative inside me. What should I be doing? Right. And I think it's OK to always have the hustle. I mean, now that going back, you know, going forward to all of these experiences and what, what we'll talk about, it's, I've realized that it's OK. It is OK to have 
that steady thing if you still need it or want to. But then there's so much time during the day. I mean, yeah. yes, us as moms, it's a little bit more complicated. And I realized that when I became a mom, but it is still like the pandemia taught me that you can do everything. It's just insane. So in New York, I started to go into the garment district, all of mm-hmm. Seventh Avenue, learn about, you know, how to make a collection. I actually hire a woman, actually French, because no, I'm not foreshadowing. <laughs> no. And you're back with foreshadowing. And, you know, and funny, I should have met you instead of meeting her, but I met her sort of since and you know, at first you feel that you don't know anything because, oh, mm-hmm. I'm a finance person. I don't have the right to know fashion or mm-hmm. I don't have the right to be creative or I don't have the right to do anything. So you really think that you need, you know. Did she charge you a lot of money? So at the beginning, when she was very helpful and it was more of a month to month thing and, yeah. and doing a little thing, but she did, I learned a lot about making a collection and there's a handbag, right? So podcast, but she said to me, don't do handbags. And I'm like, but that's what I want to do. And she's like, well, it's so saturated, which is true. But start with something else. Start with another accessory. You know, start with other stuff. And then eventually you'll go into handbags. And yeah, I mean, I follow the advice and that's kind of like what happened. But, you know, sometimes you either to go with your gut or sometimes you have to listen to special and balance of those that was actually going to work. And at some point she starts charging a mortgage and I'm still at the band, so I'm okay to like, you know, get rid of a few thousand kind of like to build this collection. But then at some point this help support start to be, oh, I charged you this month because I made a Facebook post. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? And this is why I said, I'm gonna learn everything. I'm gonna learn social media, website, you know, I do my websites, I do all the social media, you know, I have to learn because this Can is insane. Can I say that that is such a standard, typical cautionary tale of transferring from, you know, this gigantic insecurity of I'm not trained in design. I don't understand the industry. Therefore, I need to hire a whole mess of people who claim expertise and they can then charge me carte blanche, whatever the heck they believe is worth it. Because again, it's the green cost, I call it. It's the cost that people can sniff out how little you know. And as a result of knowing so little, they can overcharge you. And I've had so many designers come to me and say, oh, I'd love to work with you and hire you. And I said, okay, but I'm not free. Nobody should be free, you know, fact. However, they've blown all their money with people who have, you know, like I've spoken to a designer recently who doesn't have a line or a collection ready, but has already hired a publicist. And it's like, but you shouldn't, number one, in my opinion, again, I always claim I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer. So, you know, lawyers, first thing they say, doctors, first thing they say is like, I am not your doctor, I'm not your lawyer. So this is just my opinion. My opinion is Don't hire anybody on the outside until you know how to do absolutely everything, even if it's not well or to educate yourself. You know, who are the editors that theoretically cover the brand or the idea that you think your handbag would represent? Right. 
who covers those kinds of stories that would fall into the demographic. So you know that when you outsource someone, let alone a salesperson for boutiques or a PR person for stories, that you can come to them and say, have you reached out or have you followed up with XYZ? Because in my opinion, that's who we should be. And if they say no, then you know you shouldn't be working with them because they're doing you dirty. And again, it's, you know, and this is nothing that you should be ashamed of or annoyed with yourself. And I always say it's the cost of doing business. It's the sunk cost, as they say in business school, whatever sunk cost of the learning curve where you end up losing at a minimum of five to 10,000 with just figuring it out. And that's why sharing stories like these are just so very important, right? Because you should learn, learn, learn before you make, make, make. Right. And yeah, definitely lessons learn. And it's like, when you hire a professional, just make sure you understand why you're hiring a form that is like very clear between you and that other professional. Everything should answer the why. Right. Like one of the list of items that I would be expecting from you, you know, the amount of time that you're dedicating to the brand, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you understand, yeah. okay, so this is the cost and this is what I should be. These are my expectations. This is what she understands my expectation. And she agrees to them and then we can move forward. That die collection was done between New was York it ha- and was it a handbag? Was it a handbag no. collection? No, what was it? Is it? It was a collection of accessories that was hats, plates, like necklaces. Like I had like lots of stuff from Paris. Like how do you call that uh, lace? These are things that were size agnostic right? That it didn't matter because always the danger of moving into anything beyond handbags. You know, I always say handbags is really difficult, but there's always a way to figure it out. There's, you know, a secret sauce. If you fit, oh, look at that. Yeah. We like were all, yep. That's a film. But it's handbags. You know, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. They are size agnostic. They are the non-judgmental accessory. Oh, wow. But that's that a really piece. That's really nice. I gotta say, there was like lots, very romantic. It was kind of different, you know, like romantic. The sense I'm already it. looking at that printout, and that's a lot of money. Like that paper, that binding, that spiral. That's like at least five grand right there. The photo shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Like the notebook is really nice. We did three photo shoots. Like, oh, geez, that one. And it's exciting to do a photo shoot for the first time. But then you're like, you always have to do this because I found myself on photo shoots. My first photo shoot for my handbags, I did it in a club. I got a promoter. He got models. The models were coked out. And I'm like, is this what it's supposed to be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the learning curve. So wait, so you've developed this. She's charging you an arm and a leg. At which point did you say, okay, I need to go back to business school and I'm putting you on pause, lady? Yeah, so that's kind of like it coincides with me like leaving, like me leaving New York and kind of really being between the three things of San Juan, Paris and, and New York and just starting to get like the first recognition that I'm actually changing from biking to fashion, you know, kind of you know, right. things like that. And I was able to sell that collection in a store in like the bridge. Did you sell it yourself? No, no, no. Like uh, to a store. No, but did you sell it yourself? Did you show up with the samples to the boutique and say, hey, yeah, it's so important. Yeah. I mean, these were some, these were connections to like people that I knew that all of a sudden starting to have a boutique. So that's how, and that's definitely, I would say, probably people that you know, like your network knows you. 
Yeah. And they'll support you if, you know, if, if they align with what you're doing and what they want to show in the store, they'll definitely support you. Yeah. So I started with that. I started in a store in Puerto Rico also. That was the store that I used to go, you know, every mm-hmm. Saturday to buy for the night out. So, you know, they were also very supportive of me and they helped me do pop-ups and, you know, things like that. See, and I just, I want to point out now that may not have been the store that you worked with once your handbag line launched, because I definitely want to get straight to that, but never underestimate your local boutique. And I think so many people need to remember that, that you find one store that will support you. You befriend the owner and talk to them and then get them vested in your story. Don't be a pain in the ass. But if you can develop a relationship, buy something from them at least once or twice so they don't think it's a transactional relationship and say, this is I'm creating something if you have some time and never go on a weekend because people always think they can show up on a weekend to sell. No, that's when they're working. Show up during a dead time during the week where they're like desperate to talk to anybody. Present your stuff and say, what do you think? Would you buy this? How much do you think your customer would pay for it? This is the competition I think it should be. Do you agree with me? And go from there because that relationship will be your game changer and say, listen, if you place an order, if I get press, you will be the first stockist that I will mention. Exactly. And so 100%, and that's exactly what happened in all these things that were, you know, pressed all the time were covering me back then. I was able to put all of these stores yeah. whenever I spoke about it or yeah. the journal, you know, the, the newspaper, things like that. And so I moved to Paris and this, this time I realized I'm, I'm going to have my first baby. And I'm like, hey, okay, this is going to be difficult. But I kept going. I kept selling and promoting. the. But you knew the person you were having the baby with, right? Yes, yes. I, <laughs> oh my God, I got joked. I knew. And then I say, okay, so once like things are, or they're still like in boutiques, I'm like, okay, so one next. Then I thought, well, I'm in Paris. The idea, I was 36 by that point. What idea would have been that I was going to study fashion. I'm at the baby king. So I had to study French before actually studying, studying fashion. So I studied French. And then through the Puerto Rican mafia, of already settled um, Puerto Ricans in Paris, I get a fashion connection that would interview me for a job, a job at Iro Paris, I-R-O Paris, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the best leather jacket and jeans that you can actually find. And I did lots of seasons with them for wholesale because they did four times a year of wholesale international sales. What are you doing for them? So everything related to the showroom, but my clients, were mostly Spanish and American mm-hmm. and Asian. Did those three clients, which was so instrumental to just learning how different cultures buy. You know, when you got Middle Eastern, they buy everything because they wear everything. When you buy, when you're selling to the more laughing, they like blur and the stories behind the clothes. When you sell to America, they just need to be efficient about things that are actually sell. And when you are dealing with Asians, they have a very thorough process of trying on everything on their own bodies because they have a different shape and they're smaller than, you know, sometimes the models that are wearing these clothes on the runway. So that was just amazing. As to how a collection was constructed, what's the story behind it, what's the materials, why those materials were important. And I did several pieces. If you ever wanted to start a handbag brand and didn't know where to start, this is for you. If you had dreams of becoming a handbag designer but aren't trained in design, this is for you. If you have a handbag brand and need strategy and direction, this is for you. 
I'm Emily Blumenthal, handbag designer expert and handbag fairy godmother, and this is the Handbag Designer 101 Masterclass. Over the next 10 classes, I will break down everything you need to know to make, manufacture, and market a handbag brand, broken down to ensure that you will not only skip steps in the handbag building process, but also to save money to avoid the learning curve of costly mistakes. For the past 20 years, I've been teaching at the top fashion universities in New York City, wrote the Handbag Designer Bible, founded the Handbag Awards, and created the only Handbag Designer Podcast. I'm going to show you like I have countless brands to create in this in-depth course from sketch to sample to sale, whether you're just starting out and don't even know where to start or begin, or if you've had a brand and need some strategic direction, the Handbag Designer 101 Masterclass is just for you. So let's get started and you'll be the creator of the next it bag. Join me, Emily Blumenthal, in the Handbag Designer 101 Masterclass. So be sure to sign up at emilyblumenthal.com slash masterclass and type in the code podcast to get 10% off your masterclass today. And there is a missing link in our story that I find out at some point. I have your book. Yes. <laughs> it's actually in my other office back there. And I don't remember how I got your book is it that i went to amazon to find it or somebody told me about this book it might have been that french woman that told me to buy the book it oh might God. have been but i cannot remember that little detail and how i started to actually follow you and follow the independent handbag awards and then i said hmm like when i left new york i had done a first remember i've been told you can't do handbags but when I left New York, I did one sample in New York. So the first ever handbag that I did was in New York. Oh my and God. basically, there was like this clutch, which has right. been a lot of years, and it had like a magnet, and then you could change <gasps> the accessories of, you know, I mean, this is metal, but you know. Right. You could change the accessories of like the design. Uh-huh. And for me, it was very tied to my schedule of traveling because I needed to come for the weekend, but I just had one handbag that I could carry. So then you have different straps. straps that are chain or combat or leather. And that was the idea of that first handbag. And that first handbag was the one that I used for the first time that I ever submitted a sketch. And then every year I would look at the categories and see like, okay, for which category do I you know, like see myself doing something for. And then at some point, it, you know, second year goes by. And then the third year is when I, we actually got into the awards as a nominee. I think it was the Amy Kestenberg category. Mm-hmm. And that's where the cuckoo is born. And the cuckoo means you in French, like cuckoo, like hello, your formal hello. And I had started using that name, like my sister in New York. And we just kept going with that name. I said the, the first accessory should be you know, name like cuckoo. And that was a multifunctional bag kind of going after this type of um of storyline, which is like you're busy and you love handbags and stuff, but when you're traveling you gotta be more efficient. So that first handbag of the cuckoo this year was like a bag that you could use a uh, top body and then you had four D rings here where you could just change to do back bag, belt bag, shorter kind of like a uh, bun bag, you know, all those things or clutch. 
And that's where the first bag of the the that had been centered. That was when we got like the back from like the awards, like getting Puerto Rico to be involved and voting and all that. That's when I said, okay, so maybe there is something interesting here. And it's interesting because the one that went to the finals, it, this is more of the version of the sample that was made. The one that made to the finals was more aligned with Amy Kestenberg's design. And it was a suede kind of bronze bag. It, it was a rose gold medal and I'm forgetting the world with the medals. And it was just more aligned with Amy Kestenberg because it was as if you were designing for her brand. Right. And then I realized after the award that, oh my God, the sample bag is the one that really aligns more with what, what I want to do with the black and the gray leather and all that, the gold chain, things like that. So then it's this is 2019 and do the show, we do the handbags. So I start, so there were two, there's two bags, the bag that went into the competition and my sample. And I just took photos of that bag everywhere I went as if there were a hundred. And the other day, I am telling this story in like a group of women, one that, that, that they're starting to kind of do their own stuff, not really handbags, but other stuff. And when she hears this, she was like, I, I thought that there was a hundred bags, that there were not two. There was a hundred bags that you were just photographing everywhere. And I'm like, no, there was only two bags because at that point I haven't found manufacturing and who's going to do them or where am I going to do them in Paris? And this is just before the pandemic. I worked at a last job at Kento, which is, which is my last kind of official job in the fashion luxury industry in Paris. And then the pandemic starts. And once I'm in the pandemic, I'm doing kind of like clients that I have for graphic design, website consulting, and things like that. And then I said, okay, we're stuck here. So I got to keep the story here. I'm going to have to find a manufacturing here. And that was the most stressful thing that I've ever done in my life mm, because yep. even though you got the money to pay them, they say no. <laughs> yeah, it's so many thoughts. So one, I want to point out that how you learned early, probably not even aware of the knowledge you gained working for that showroom, because from a retail anthropological mindset of learning how people shop and how people shop differently and the needs and wants of different people is so very different and that you cannot sell the same product to different people the same way. That is such an important point. I mean, and also that no one bag, you know, when people always say it's a day to night bag, in my opinion, there's no such thing. Okay. The bag you use during the day is not the bag you're going to use at night. It's like, you know, what you wore, the sneakers you wore all day, you want to change to something fancy or cute or pretty or put on cool sneakers. You know, there's a totally different mindset. Also, in recognizing what you said about, I always say smoke buys mirrors, the fact that you made it look like that you were set up and had production and had a new, new and had the insight to take photos all over the place to give the allure that if anybody buys from you D to C, that you were ready. And what I did with boutiques before I had manufacturing is I made my delivery six months down the road. I was like, okay, you can place an order, but it's for holiday. And it was, I don't know, March. Now I had to find someone I knew it would take me some time, but I knew I should be able to get something by October, November, at least I hoped. So all these key points are such good nuggets of information just to validate how clever you are. I want to get into, you know, just to tie this all back into you finding manufacturing, how much they charged 
do, how much, you know, it, you know, ripped you apart and how this ties to Web3 and what you're doing now with everything all together. And I know you're going back right. to Adalu. So let's dive in because no. it's such an interesting angle. So once I get that, you know, the biggest, the, the most complex handbag I've ever done in my life is this first handbag of Lakuku because I actually ended up sourcing everything for that manufacturer to agree to do the bag because it was so complicated because you're designing for the first time. So you, you know, that's something that you need to- You don't understand. realize that every bell and whistle is gonna cost you money because every little detail is labor right. and labor is time. And especially dealing with a manufacturer, they can, right. the green cost, they sniff out that you don't know what the hell you're doing. So it's like, well, I'm gonna charge you triple and put you at the bottom of my to-do list. Right, and that also, you know, helps you place it accordingly. This, yeah. uh, this is that has a award from Italy also, so now it's, two major outlets that I have recognized the bag, the bag. So it's just a different process for me to do the bag. And I made sure that I documented that well enough. Yeah. For when people learn about the price, they wouldn't like when she thinks she is, you know? Yeah. And I never, never got a complaint about that price. And Amazing. it was almost $500. And it was a little and bag. And it's a tiny bag. I mean, if it's the phone, but yeah. it is like a smaller, it's not your everyday bag, you know? And it's just, Special. is it just lambskin? It's just lambskin. Yeah. yeah. Grain, leather, Italian. It's nice. Yeah, it is nice. And all the components were nice. I mean, yeah. I've seen bags that have like a leather strap. Yeah. Burton doing a Chanel strap, which is right. God. Why did I ever do this? But it yeah. at the end it gave me so much satisfaction that I how to do this myself, like the yeah. bags, the chain, that I understand like the weight of the metal, how it is so really craft and it helped me document it so I can learn, you know, transmit the message that this is why this is such an expensive, expensive bag. And the second thing before I kind of go into that Web3, what has happened is that I learned that once you got those clients that really love what you do, it's all a matter of adding more products. So. This is the pandemia that Google is going to take seven months to make because this person is tied up with lots of handbags for all the clients. So I go to Spain and I said, okay, I want a smaller version of the Cuckoo, which is the still one, mini Cuckoo, but I want to do it in some place else and another factory because I want to make sure that I get have something that will come faster than this one. And then I grab the attention of people that already pre-order the Cuckoo so they would also this one that but will that, deliver but that, much faster. You know, I think that's a super valuable point to recognize that hedge your bets never depend on just one factory. I had a factory with my first order from Nordstrom. I didn't know that it was a Muslim factory, not that they should have told me that, not that I would have even known to ask. But the fact is, I was reaching out to them like crazy during Ramadan, which... I didn't know I shouldn't. I didn't even know they weren't working. And it's like reaching out to a factory during Chinese New Year, like it's going to go crickets. So I not only offended this factory, I pissed them off and they threatened to not produce at all, like at all. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where I was terrified and I, you know, every I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, of course, I'll be respectful and you're beholden to these factories. 
So it's one of those things where you're like, holy shit, what am I going to do? So this learning curve is fast. So, you know, put on your list, like what asking the factory, what are your days that you don't work? What are the best times? What can you really expect from them? When is going to be like disrupted? And then diversification is really good also because then you always have an influence of products. If you already have a client that is interested in knowing, okay, what else are you doing? Show me that. And then I started to do storytelling behind this, all of these products because they were still multifunctional at this point. And then mother comes along and I'm making bracelets with the extra pain yeah. that I have. And I dipped them in gold and I put like the hearts that we use for the handbag, which is, yeah. comes with a key you can take it out and use it as a network. So I started to play with my materials that I already started to be piling up and how can this be used into another product because there is the demand for the product and I have the material and there are things that actually I can do in my own studio. Here in this studio, right. there right. was lots of the accessories were done besides packaging things like that. Some I learned how to get all the tools that I needed to do bracelets, to do necklaces, you know, with all of that extra. And then all of a sudden, I have three handbags with three sizes yeah. And three earrings, bracelets, necklaces. Yeah. So I have a whole collection that I can take into, let's say, stores, but yeah. also pop-ups and especially yeah. like holidays and are really good when you already have like a nice collection on an inventory. If you go to one of those like holiday events, those are really good to be able to sell everything. And that's mm-hmm. this was the point where I am done with all the inventory, maybe just a few things. I kept things in the museum of Puerto Rico and design because I wanted to kind of tie the brand to just this craftsmanship and design aspect of the brand. But then this is where I'm like, okay, it's November, December, winter's going to come. Let me take a break and reassess what I want to do for the next mm-hmm. season. And this is where I stumble into Web3, listening to Clubhouse and Twitter and all of that. And then I realized, wow, this is pretty so, cool. Because, yeah. You are now a Web3 expert. People bring you all over the world to speak about it. You're on platforms and panels and discussions. And I'm so grateful to be connected with you within that space because you have taught me and educated me so kindly and patiently to explain the value of Web3 and NFT may or may not be a dirty word. If you could just speak to a little bit, how do you see the future of NFT's Web3 with handbags? And where are you with Edelu now? Yeah, so really Web3 has brought me back to back to have a relationship with you, which has been amazing after the pandemic and everybody, you know, it's over the place. Web3 has introduced me to just a bunch of women out there that are really working hard into using blockchain technology. And this is all about blockchain technology and how are we going to use the blockchain technology for the future. And basically, Fasten is one of its first messengers. Fasten is, you know, apart from crypto, which I oh, women were left behind. And it led me to be, okay, to understand, it led me to understand crypto, which I, 2014, if it's finance, I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) I literally said this, an idiot, right? And I'm like, okay, I can still learn about this. I've learned a little bit about what's happening with crypto. How is this involved? Where's the the, the place for fashion? And I've learned that not only 
there's a, a community of like women and men that are really ingrained into the ownership aspect of a digital asset mm. tied to a real asset. And I think that is so interesting because for our subject of handbags, one, they can be certified that that's a handbag made by X amount of, you know, X brand, yeah. where it was made, you know, which what materials and what has happened to the bag since it left the factory into your hands and into the next owner if you happen to resell it. Oh my God, Ada, we, we need to do a special episode specific to... We can do. No, I think we need to because there's so much to speak about and it minimizes your impact and and your knowledge with just like having it thrown in with a handful of sentences. So we're definitely going to have you back to talk about this in deeper detail because I think there's a lot of opportunity. In my opinion, I don't think Web3 should be anything exclusive, my opinion, to sell from Web3 to Web2, which also might not make sense to a lot of people, is a lot more difficult than going from Web2 to Web3. And I think this advent of what NFTs and, you know, this kind of new future was mistaken in assuming that I could develop a handbag brand in Web3, and which is obviously an intangible part of what NFT stands for, and then translate that then fictional bag into something tangible that theoretically people would want. And it's impossible because you don't have that audience, you know, to go from, it's like, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. Web three is the rectangle. Web two is the square. You just can't go backwards. It's too difficult. So go ahead, wrap that up, and then let's hear about where you are. Yeah, the Robin is that I've been doing this almost like the Web three arena, and it is now that it's starting to come full circle in the yes. sense of that break, learning, and now people kind of starting to curious and to starting to understand it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I went to so many of those panels with you and people were saying, oh, I've been doing this for a year. And because it was so new, someone who had been doing it consistently for a year and then made them an expert, as opposed to me who had been doing it for 10 minutes as a neophyte. I'm like, wait, I'm just catching up. Wait, you've only done it a year? You know? But yeah. let's book a follow up for that because I know there's so much more to talk about. Where are you with Ada Lou and what are you doing now? So the last two years, I mean, year and a half, I've been part of the Web3 community of women and fashion, and I've been working with Ipa Fashion, this project that we'll get into on the next one, but yes. always kept myself designing, like, we'll go into this, but like the earrings that I'm wearing are like a design made for that yeah. company. They're also digital and they're also real. So I've been able to keep designing, designing not only like strategies around you know, NFTs and what we could do in a community-based fashion lover, yeah. but also products that are part of the brand of, of this new brand. And now that I feel that, okay, I think my clients are starting to catch on and be interested, I'm going back to designing for Edelou yeah. and bringing some of these bags and, and the accessories, but tied to a community aspect and a technological aspect. Community as to building this community in a like more thorough way and then mm. by choosing NFC chips and things like that into the handbag or the accessory. So they're tied to the blockchain somehow. And then a social connection will happen between the piece and the owner and the brand. Oh my God, so much more to do. Aidan, <laughs> how can everybody follow you, learn more, reach out to you? So I 
Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter as Edalu Paris. And then I have my own kind of with my different projects, Edalu Des. So Edalu Paris, once you do Edalu, E-D-A-L-U Paris, you'll be able to find me. E-D-A-L-O-U Paris, just to make that clear. Ida, it has been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to chat with you again. Thank you for being part of the Handbag Designer 101 podcast, and we will absolutely be speaking with you again. Thank you, Emily. It's a great to be part of the Handbag Designer no, family. I, you know, love at first sight. So I, I love the support. <laughs> well, you know, listen, you know. you're only as good as the community you support, especially in a market that is so oversaturated that if right. if we can't work together to support each other, then, then there's really no point because you can't stand out because no one's going to be cheering for you. And that's what we're here for. So thank you, right. my darling. We will talk soon. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review and follow us on every single platform at Handbag Designer. Thanks so much. See you next time.